This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. I grew up knowing all of my biological grandparents. While one died when I was a young teen, the remaining three plus a step-grandmother were part of my life until I was a young mother in my early 30s. I didn't know until my own children were toddlers how lucky I was in grandparents. All of them enriched my early understanding of nature and of gardens in her or his own way. My English grandfather, a horse trainer, loved his roses. My grandmother, his wife, whom we called more granny, loved camellias and the woodlands of the eastern seaboard. I have vivid memories of my paternal grandmother sending me out to the garden to cut spring asparagus and lilies of the valley. Into her 80s, she would take long daily walks through nearby meadows or along the coast in summer. My paternal grandfather, though, was perhaps the most gardening of them all. He tended summer vegetable and flower gardens carefully fenced to keep out the rabbits. The fence ribboned in spicy orange nasturtiums and sky-blue scabiosa. I have a vivid memory of him, bedridden in his last year of life, sending me out into his spring garden with his Polaroid camera to take photos of the flowering shrubs and trees, apple and cherry blossoms, quince and lilac blooms, so that I could bring the photos to him and he could enjoy the sight as close up as he could get. We'd pick the flowers for him as well, but he wanted the full photographed view of the plant in the place he had chosen for it. When I paired this memory of my grandfather with that of my young girls when they were very young, toddling around our enclosed vegetable garden like a safe space playpen, digging in the dirt, playing in buckets of water, and chasing bugs, or with images of me now, in my 50s, having downsized my home garden from one acre to a tenth of an acre, I understand implicitly that the garden has something to offer all of us at any age. It wasn't until I began reading the work of our guest today, Dr. Bill Thomas, that I would have been able to really recognize that what we want from the garden and the natural world around us changes with each age. This is an important understanding to cultivate, I think, if we want the natural world and the gardens we love to be an integral part of our lives at any age. Joining us today is Dr. Bill Thomas gardener, farmer, parent with his wife Jude, as well as being a geriatrician and international authority on elder care. In the 1990s, he and Jude co-founded a transformative philosophical approach to how we care for our elders or ourselves as we age, known as the Eden Alternative. In this, he challenges us as individuals and as a culture to reframe how we imagine life in elderhood and that we imagine it to be more like a garden and less like a hospital. The leader of ChangingAging.org, Bill Thomas, is currently on tour around the country with his Age of Disruption performances. He is also in production for a new podcast known as Ask Dr. Bill How to Play Life's Most Dangerous Game. Welcome, Dr. Bill Thomas. Well, thanks for having me. So, Given all that you do and all that you have done, and um, as just barely introduced in my introduction to you, it's really hard to know where to start. And so I have to start with where I am, and that is that your work came before me 
um, through friends who work in the world of elder care and, and senior services. And I was so taken with this description of wanting elderhood to look more like a garden. When And you're identifying yourself in so much of what you do as being a farmer, gardener. When did you first know that you had a connection to plants and the land? Actually, I, I had the good fortune of uh, growing up in a rural area uh, where uh, the connection, actually for us growing up, the connection to the land was more than an idle, a matter of idle interest. We uh, grew up um, maintaining a family garden, and my mom was really a very prolific preserver of food in lots of different ways, uh, canning and freezing. So uh, as, as a young person, I actually just witnessed a direct connection between the cycle of seasons and the growth of a garden and then the preservation of food, and then the food is on the table. So growth you know that those gardens helped grow me as a as a young boy helped me grow up big and strong in 1991 you mm-hmm. uh, became the medical director at a nursing home a very traditional nursing home facility in upstate new york and it was a struggle for you sort of emotionally and intellectually and this whole process is described very beautifully in uh, Atul Gawande's Being Mortal book. And you went to the the administrators of your nursing home and you said, this is depressing and I want to add some life here. And you you did. Will you describe that process and what you added for, for us? Yeah, actually, and the context, uh, it's kind of fun providing your listeners with a little extra context that not a lot of people actually know. Um, during those years, uh, I was living in a house that I had built myself, and we were living the homesteading lifestyle. Um, and I think um, a lot of your listeners will be familiar with it. Uh, homesteading uh, was not directed so much at a commercial farming operation as it was um, trying a family trying to put together the, the means of their own shelter and their own sustenance. So uh, during those years, I uh, did a lot of my transportation on bicycle and uh, took care of a homestead. And so I was getting a massive culture shock every time I jumped on my bike on my little homestead uh, after milking the goats and then rode down uh, a hill to into town where there was this nursing home. And I would walk into the nursing home and I would realize I had just entered a, another country, uh, another world. And I realized that what I was, the sustenance and the richness I was drawing from the earth and my connection to the earth was absolutely positively missing. And it made me realize that I couldn't bear uh, the injustice of it. So that's when I went to the the bosses and said, you know, really, we've got to make some changes here. So describe those changes that you made. Well, so here's here's the great thing about gardens. Um, in, in a very real way, the gardens are the closest acquaintanceship most of us will ever have with real uh, 
abundance. Mm-hmm. Um, gardens, gardens offer us tremendous abundance. And so I, I brought that idea with me and said, you know, it was conventional at the time um, to think of, you know, oh, we'll, we'll get a plant. We'll get a plant for the nursing home or we'll get a cat or something. And uh, instead, I proposed uh, eight cats, four dogs, two rabbits that I was assured were both female, um, some chickens. We made a chicken tractor, plowed up the, gar- or the lawn, just plowed it and planted a garden, uh, started a child daycare center, and brought in a thousand indoor plants, and also uh, 400 parakeets. I love this. It's such a like Noah's Ark vision when I was reading about it. And you can you can almost you can just hear it and see it and smell it and say that that is lively, and yeah, you know yeah, if I could just say yeah. you're, you're, it's, it's all about the senses. <laughs> and um, if I were to take you uh, to that time and place, you could just sit in a chair and close your eyes and hear children laughing and birds singing, and a bustle of conversation. And perhaps one of the most important things was you were never really sure what was going to happen next. Yeah, which is sort of life in a garden, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And so there's a lot of description about how the um, elders in this community responded to the mm-hmm. animals. But I haven't read a lot of description about how they responded to the plants. And exactly there, there's a description of a flower garden, a vegetable garden, and a lot of plants being brought indoors as well. Yeah. Describe for us, if you would, the how they engaged inside and outside and what exact plants you were you were incorporating yeah so uh, <laughs> anybody who's spent any time in a conventional long-term care facility and has any interest in gardening is going to instantly say wow man light is a problem mm-hmm. these places do not have much light so we really had to focus in on uh, plants that were able to survive often in very low-light um, environments. And the second thing is we knew that we would not be able to sort of go out to a greenhouse and buy our plants and bring them back and put them in the nursing home because uh, they weren't acclimated for a relatively low-light environment. So we solved this actually by uh, encouraging members of the community and family members and elders themselves to take cuttings uh, from their favorite plants that they thought might do well in the light that was available. And, you know, there's some places where there was a lot of light. but um, And root the cuttings. So, uh, again, this story is a lot about process. It's, it's not about a truck dropping off a thousand plants. Those thousand plants were raised from cuttings by the people who lived there. And as they got rooted, we uh, started having potting parties, which you can imagine all kinds of potting parties we might have had, but this kind involved transplanting uh, cuttings into uh, potting soil. And we uh, then started distributing the plants uh, and made gifts of them to each other. And the elders had a specific role in helping uh, to care for the plants. 
that focus on process comes home so nicely to both what it means to be a gardener or to to cultivate a garden and what it means to be a human and live through this life. And again, as I was reading about your work, one of the almost creepy similarities for me that kept coming up is our societal tendency to want to either, you know, avoid or deny or not embrace how we age and live with it for for what it is and what we can learn there and learn from people who are there. And, And I saw this similarity in the way that we treat our environment, sometimes through our gardens, by kind of not wanting to embrace where we live and, and what we can learn from where we live as opposed to superimposing these gardens that don't say anything about place for us. Right. Oh, my gosh, yeah. So place. So uh, that, excellent point because, again, if we had a, a magic uh, uh, transporter and I could take you to 20 conventional long-term care facilities, you would have no idea where you were. None. No idea. That whether I took you to Boulder, Colorado, or Sarasota, Florida, there's no difference. Mm. And so we uh, feel that uh, the garden, a garden rightly understood, is always unique to its place. And uh, a garden rightly understood is unique to its people. Mm. So uh, I, I kind of think of gardens as a, a miraculous collision between plants, place, and people. They get together, and what they make can't be made anyplace else. So uh, part of the uh, emphasis on gardening uh, was really an attempt to create a feeling of place inside an environment which conventionally understood really has nothing to say about place. Yeah. We're speaking with Dr. Bill Thomas, who was named by the Wall Street Journal as one of the leading innovators of our time for his work on transforming how our culture sees and values aging. And this question we're talking about right now in terms of denying where we are or embracing and learning from where we are, whether that's in a garden or in our time of life. Um, And I completely agree with you that a a garden rightly viewed is a combination of people, place, and plants, and all of the animals that go with those plants. Um, Sure do. There's a wonderful quote towards the end of one of your many books, and you are a uh, both a uh, nonfiction writer of information on aging, as well as a uh, a novelist and. but your most recent book, Second Wind, towards the end, it, it sets up this lovely sort of parable of um, the world being composed of people who are deniers, people who are sort of rigid realists, and people who yeah. are enthusiasts. And I loved that. But you have this great quote, which is, denialism is a harsh mistress. Her demands are unrelenting, and her rewards are meager. And I, I see this as true in both of these situations in terms of how we embrace aging or don't and how mm-hmm. we embrace the places we live and garden in or don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Reality has a way of uh, insisting. <laughs> and, um, you know, sometimes we, we uh, 
uh, spend a little more time than we should, maybe, in illusion. There's an old saying, which is, pleasure may rely upon illusion, but happiness requires the truth. And one of the, one of the great things about gardening is that it insists upon the truth. You're listening to Cultivating Place. Today we're speaking with Dr. Bill Thomas, geriatrician and self-appointed ambassador from elderhood, whose life's work is to change people's attitudes on aging. The founder of the Eden Alternative and ChangingAging.org. After the break, Bill Thomas and I will return to discussing why elderhood can and should look more like a garden and less like a hospital. We'll be right back. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Before the break, we began our conversation with international authority and advocate for aging and elderhood, Dr. Bill Thomas. Welcome back. You mentioned Summerhill earlier, the -the off-the-grid homestead you and your family lived on. When you visualize the garden that you might want and need in deeper elderhood, say 20 years from now, what do you visualize? To really, uh, that's a a great question because um, it actually allows me to talk about something that I feel is fundamental to understanding age properly. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, as we grow older, there is a 100% natural and healthy process through which our world gets smaller. So I mentioned, you know, before I was on an airplane last week and I was flying here and flying there. Very nice. You know, 20 years from now, I won't travel with the same intensity uh, that I do now. And years after that, I'll probably be sticking pretty close to home, which is right and proper. So as our world gets smaller, um, the, the amount of influence and impact the world right close to us has gets bigger. So back on the homestead, uh, you know, we had a woodlot. Uh, we had a maple sugar operation. We had a. We did logging with horses and had a, a sawmill operation. We put up uh, hay every year. We raised uh, cow-calf pears for dairy replacement heifer operation. So we did all these things, and it was all-consuming, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. When I'm 20 years older, my garden will be smaller because I want it closer to me and I'll want it the garden to fit 
the amount of energy reserve that I have at that time of my life. So uh, I think sometimes our culture encourages us to see this kind of change as a form of failure. And I want to say to all the listeners out there, if you feel yourself moving away from the bigger garden you might have kept 10 years ago toward a smaller garden, that is good, it's right, it's healthy, uh, make that move. Make that smaller garden be really precious to you. And I think you'll be living in uh, harmony with your own changing self. It's not just the garden that grows, you know. The people grow, too. One of the insights that I take away from, from reading your work and listening to your TED Talk and reading other people about you is this trying to encourage ourselves to remember that this is a developmental stage of life just like any other and it has its joys and its lessons and as you say it's appropriate um, aspects and characteristics. So how do we transcend our fears and create garden and outdoor environments that welcome and are fit for elders or our own elderhoods? So I, I, I sort of feel like you're talking about harmonization. Mm. And um, part of what I feel, I'm talking about my interest in the field of aging right now, but part of what our culture does is it estranges us from the true nature of our aging self. So our culture says the best version of you that ever existed is back there in the past somewhere. You left it behind. You got left behind. You you used to be somebody, but now you're not so much. And and what that does to people is is it causes people to try to hold on to what they think represents the best of their former self. And I I talk about this in in terms of the tyranny of the word still. And you can hear older people using this and people talking about older people using this. They talk about themselves as I still keep an acre and a half garden or I still work every day or I still uh, 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 go water skiing in the summertime. Whatever it is, doesn't matter. Point being, we're encouraged to compare ourselves in essence compare ourselves to a past self and to hold that past self as being perfect. And I actually think um, Thomas Jefferson had probably the best antidote to that line of thought. He, he wrote in one of his letters, um, though I am an old man, I am but a young gardener. And what he was saying to his uh, correspondent was he'd seen 50 springs and that was just barely enough to start, just to start figuring it out. And um, I was like Jefferson's faith that um, he was on a journey of discovery. And I think Americans, America's sort of lionization of youth often denies that to people and, and traps them in an illusion that, that's really quite harmful. And I would definitely suggest that the garden is a, as a process, 
um, whether you are enjoying it as an appreciator or engaged in it as an actual gardener, it teaches us so much about process and um, ties us so firmly to the process, the natural cycles. Yeah, it, I, I, can I say, I, yeah. I think it ties us to now. Yeah. <laughs> Your garden does not care about what happened before or what's going to happen three months from now. If you want to take care of that garden, it's what happens now. What does it need now? Um, when I was um, talking about nursing homes, I would try to teach the staff about how important it was to respond to the elders' moments in the need, elders' needs in the moment. And um, I would give them a garden analogy, actually, and say, what if you decided, I'm going to water my garden every Wednesday, whether it needs it or not. And then I find you on some Wednesday standing in the pouring rain with a hose watering your garden. And I say to you, why are you doing this? And you say, because it's Wednesday. Well, that doesn't make any sense. And it's the same with elders and with people. Our, our task is to recognize the needs of the moment and respond to the needs of the moment, of the now, and not to place people on some arbitrary schedule or some arbitrary scheme uh, that actually denies their their really their true needs. And so that brings us to the now for you. You have uh, we're speaking with Dr. Bill Thomas, uh, national authority on aging and advocate for. Uh, elderhood. And I love you describing yourself as an ambassador to elderhood. I'm on the the edge hey. of, of elderhood, and I am only looking forward to it. And you make it look um, like I have a lot to learn there. Thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Bill Thomas. It's been an honor. Well, thanks for having me. Bill Thomas is co-founder with his wife, Jude, of a transformative philosophical approach to how we care for our elders or ourselves as we age, known as the Eden Alternative. He dreamed up and implemented the greenhouse projects for better quality of life for elders across the country. He is currently spearheading a movement known as ChangingAging.org, for which he is now on tour with his Age of Disruption performances across the country. He is also in production on a new podcast known as Ask Dr. Bill How to Play Life's Most Dangerous Game. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week as the conversations continue with Vanessa Diffenbaugh, Northern California author of the acclaimed novel The Language of Flowers and founder of the Camellia Network. We'll also be joined by Shelley Watson, Director of Services for the Jesus Center, a Christian-based support organization in Chico. When Watson read The Language of Flowers, she was struck by how much the story of Diffenbaugh's main character, Victoria, in The Language of Flowers resonated with her own life experiences. In 2013, Watson founded a vocational training program known as Bloomin' Hope at the Jesus Center. On May 14th, Diffenbaugh will be the featured speaker at a luncheon fundraiser for the Jesus Center and their outreach work. Tune in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Matt Schultz. 
More information, including audio archives, can be found weekly at mynspr.org. Detailed information and photographs are available at jewelgarden.com. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.